Hello, this is Robin Ince and Josie Long's Book Shambles and we are back. We don't know what episode this is anymore, but we are still here. We're having a great time broadcasting and taking over the media. Um, and our guest today is the wonderful writer, uh, performer as well. Do you perform? I still sometimes still do. still perform, don't you? Yeah. Natalie Haynes, ladies and gentlemen. And broadcaster. And broadcaster. Oh, yeah. Please, you've got to remember, please. Well, so please welcome the performer, <laughs> writer and broadcaster. Natalie Haynes. <laughs> Natalie Haynes, when you first became a broadcaster... No, right, so I, I want to get onto this, first of all, because you read. Oh, do you read? I do right? read. I've known you. I mean, I didn't know she's you as a reader, reader when I first met you. Yeah. I knew you were somebody who watched a lot of trauma films, such as Surf Nazis Must That's Die. That's true, because I worked at Blockbuster Video in those days. Ah. Turns out I lasted longer than them. Who saw that coming? <laughs> that is one of the great tragedies, actually, which is sorry, I was talking Robin. to someone recently where they went, no, not you haven't died before Blockbuster. <laughs> I mean... Someone said, Blockbuster, they actually, they were the first people to do online stuff, but they went, we still need the big unwieldy shops. Oh, they've weighed us to the grave. But now we know that you're something. You have been a judge on the Booker Prize. That's true. I judged um, the Women's Prize for Fiction, then the Orange Prize, now the Baylor's Prize in 2012. And then the Man Booker Prize in 2013. And then the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, which has now been subsumed within the... um, Man Booker International um, in 2014. So I read, for three years, I read every, every book. <laughs> oh, sorry, we better read you the intro then. So um, we're very lucky to be joined by the writer, performer, broadcaster and judge, Natalie Haynes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a lot of judging. It was a lot. Yeah. Of, it was a lot. But also, it must have been four years where you felt like, I am on the I pulse. did feel like that. Yeah, no, I did. I felt like there was just nothing happening in modern fiction that I didn't know about. And actually, I built up quite a lot of knowledge of, of the non-fiction world too, because it turns out if you read enough novels, you genuinely find some stuff out. <laughs> ah, gratifying. <laughs> but yeah, no, I did get a bit... I went a bit crazy during the Booker, because that was 151 books in 204 days, first time through. Lovely. And that was a bit like being Whoa, bludgeoned. On, sorry, what? That's, yes. <laughs> That's a yes. book every day and a half. Um, it was, um, more funnily, uh, it was a book every other day for the first 100 days, and then a book every day for the second 100 days because they came in late. <laughs> so, Basically, if that yeah. chase sequence in Bullet, the car chase sequence, was actually set in a book, in a book yeah. about a book yes. with lots of books in it and everything was a book, I'd green that would that. be the equivalent. Yeah. I think that's a Borges story. <laughs> <laughs> well, Did that you, is, okay, and when you were doing... Sorry, sorry. No. But when you were doing that, were you allowed to if one was really... You knew it wasn't going to win after 20 pages being like, fuck this guy. No. Well, oh. I mean, in theory, I suppose, yes, you could, but I didn't. Uh, I read them all. That's conscientious. Um, I am quite conscientious, but you knew that anyway. Yes, I am I quite a girly swat, and that is undeniable. But also, um, the thing is, books take ages to write. I mean, they really do. And I know some people can just hurl one out in, you know, three weeks or whatever, but I don't. those aren't generally the kind that get sent in to the man booker. And so even if it's awful, somebody spent ages on it, months of their life, maybe years of their life. And it's very hard to take that lightly. When I'm sent to review like a rubbish sitcom or something like that, and it feels like everything about it is somebody going, can you do me a a knockoff version of something more successful on another channel? Mm -hmm. And then laziness makes me full of ire as a reviewer. But generally with a book, somebody tried really hard, even if it's rotten. Um, and so there's that. But also there's the fact that every morning the man booker has um, archivists um, who kind of harvest everything from around the world in the English language 
about the man Booker every single day. So just in case you thought for a minute, oh, well, you know, I can relax because who's going to know? And it's not that important. Then suddenly you'd wake up to this huge list of things that have been written about the man Booker in papers in India today. or in, And you just go, oh. Got to take it really seriously because if we get the if we choose the you know the first time you kind of announce your your presence as a judging panel is when the long list comes out in um, the start of the summer in July and you think well if we get this wrong that's thirteen twelve or thirteen books if we get this wrong then we'll just be pilloried around the world it's mm. quite. It's quite a big deal. <laughs> and were there any other people on the judging panel that you were really at odds with? No. Well, luckily, we all had, we all really got on. So much so that, in fact, we're all going out for dinner tomorrow night. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, we, we have a little... food. Yeah, we will judge the food. I find this... They are the real metropolitan media elite. <laughs> Not like us pretending to be the metropolitan media communist elite. There's the real, um, oh, yes, I'll tell you what, the crab's gone off here. Not that you'd eat the crab. I wouldn't I eat know, the crab, Robin. And also because I'm vegetarian and technically a crab is not a vegetable. Well, it depends. I've made the crabs grow with flowers and bells. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and then you didn't eat them because you loved them so. No, they did. They they sounded so lovely. I couldn't consume them. Also, every time I was gassy, my stomach would go ring a ding a ding, and so then another angel would get wings. And I ate those bastards getting more wings. Yeah, I know. Like mosquitoes. I actually might be mosquitoes. I'll be <laughs> like, confusing fairies and mosquitoes. I was see the way that I. I'm sorry to go back to, to the, the way point. that I initially. I think because I'm very childish. The way that I would have thought of it straight away I would have been like, wanted to ask you like, and was there a book that you really hated and it's still one? But it sounds to me like the process is like long enough that you probably have been quite pleased with the long list, even let yeah. alone the short list, let alone the winner. That the the short list you'd be like, every one of these I back. Absolutely, yeah. that's exactly what happens. So um, you meet every. I don't know, four or six weeks or so, but every 20, 25 books, because you just can't retain them in your head for, for much longer than that, because they're not in your life for very long. And nobody you know? slapped off, did they? Nobody cheated. Nobody did, nobody cheated. So we met up, you read them in the same order, they all have numbers on the spine, so you're talking about the same ones, because that can be difficult when you have as many Second World War books as we did. Oh it's God. like, oh, not the Blitz again. I feel no, like no, I've no, lived no through way it. of like ringing up David Morrissey and saying, David Morrissey, can you pop round to ha- my house and read me some things? It would be too slow. Oh. Read it quicker, David. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid it would be too slow. People kept saying, "Aren't you using audiobooks? You, know, you can't listen to an audiobook in in anywhere like the time you can read it. You can read it in, in maybe a quarter of the time." So there are days when our winner was the longest ever Booker winner, um, the Luminaries, uh, which came in, I think, in um, the copy we had, uh, 832 pages. Not that I'm <laughs> scarred by it. Um, and to to buy the time to read that book, I had to read two books a day, you know, for a couple of days before it, just to build up. Because it took me two and a half days to read an 832-page book. So anything that came in under 300 pages, I felt like I was... You know, s- s- flying. It was so, such a relief. That's definitely a thing we talk about. Is how I l- I love a book that's 140 pages. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need much more than that. You don't terse. Yeah, I know. You're on the cusp of novel, but still just hinting at novella. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's that thing that um, uh, Mark Kermode always used to say that he was going to call his biography, which he then did not. I think his autobiography. Um, what's the running time? Because it's <laughs> every critic's first question. And I think for book critics, it's always um, number one. What's the page count? Number two, what's the font size? And then finally and piteously in the last sort of 30 books of the booker, how big are the margins? <laughs> I'm so ashamed. But, Does each yeah. chapter have a decorative page? Yes, on the yes. Book? Tell me there's something illuminated. <laughs> That'll buy me a good half a page. Yeah, everyone. Well, that's the lovely thing. You know, Alan Moore's book, the new one, Jerusalem, which isn't isn't uh, published yet. But the uh, it, it was originally, it, it, people thought it was going to be longer than the Bible. Turns out it's only longer than the Old Testament, that really long that's bit fine. of the Bible. Yeah, that's fine. And, mm. 
when someone said, why are you going to make it so long? He said, so that only the strongest can critique me. Yeah. And I think that's quite a nice... Oh, that's that's something to be said for that. I think he still imagines who will be the few who go, go on then, give it to me. Yeah, oh. hand it over. Well, it looks like the luminaries must be that... It must be really good. It's wonderful. To have stood all of that as well. Yeah, because I had to read it three times. I had to read it again for the shortlist and then again for the prize. So you read the long list a second time to choose the shortlist then you read the shortlist for the third time to choose the prize so yeah I've read it a bunch of times and it got better each time but I never felt like oh perhaps I'll just carry it around <laughs> even once yeah. I don't think I could do I can do I think I'm judging a music biography prize but I think they've already chosen most of them so that's quite easy I, I could do comic comics. books yeah. yeah I could do comics easy and those the science prize is alright but they don't take long because that's true but that means if you're going away from home you need to have oh, yeah. millions of them in case of it yeah yeah See, the science things are easier because there's just a bit where you go, oh, brilliant, I've checked with my physicist friend and there's three inaccuracies, therefore I don't need to read anymore. <laughs> but I do remember being told off because I went, oh, the master in emissary I think is a really interesting thing about the nature of, 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 of the brain. And everyone was like, oh, not on the long list, it's the longest one. Well, and that was all bad. my fault. Too <laughs> bad. These things happen. So what was, but what about also when you're reading all those books, and as someone who is also, as well as being a you know a, a, a judge uh, and and a broadcaster Broadcasting. and performer, um, you're also an author. That's true. And so, what, didn't you occasionally go, oh bollocks, that was the one I was going to write? No, I was really relieved because all the time I was editing um, the Amber Fury, uh, which is my last novel, at the same time as that first hundred days. So a book every other day. So I kind of I read I read ahead of it. <laughs> Um, and did, you know, some every day so that I could buy myself. I think I had two weeks, two and a half weeks to go back through for the last pass on, on my book. Um, and it was just an enormous relief because th there was a huge percentage of what we were given, both my year on the Women's Prize and on the Man Booker, um, of historical fiction. And I was at that time writing a contemporary novel set in Edinburgh mostly and here in London a little bit. Um and, uh, and, my, and Amber is all about the Greeks. It's a, a sort of modern day reworking of the Oresteia um, and, and sort of a, a thriller, I hope, at the same time. Um, and so it was an enormous relief. I was thinking, God, what am I going to do if I turn the pages and find that? But mostly I was thinking, I'm really glad I haven't set my book in World War Two, And I'm almost equally glad I haven't set it in World War One. And then when I was doing the... That, that was the recurring theme for... The Women's Prize got every... And did it, any of them get to the final? Yeah, some, some of them did, I think. But um, maybe for the Women's Prize, yes. Uh, for the Women's Prize, um, Georgina Harding's The Painter of Silence uh, was a World War II um, kind of aftermathy um, novel, and that was terrifically well-written. And Half-Blood Blues by Essie Doigan was... Uh, oh, that's wonderful if you haven't read it, um, about a, a, a jazz band in Berlin. Um, wow. Yeah, it's after it's the great. war, or during the war, before the war. Oh, so when it's and then really they had dangerous, to ruin it. When it's really, yeah, no, so that's terrific. So yeah, no, they did come through, um, if they were very, very well written. But there was that vague sense where it's my. I don't particularly have an issue with um, creative writing courses. I think whatever you, whatever you do to make yourself more confident as a writer is the right thing to do. But I do have an issue with some of the advice given by um, or given on creative writing courses, which often tends to be not lazy, but uh, maybe distilled to a point where it isn't useful. Mm. Um, and so I think one of the recurrent themes of um, creative writing courses appears to be um, students are told show, don't tell. It's very important that you show, don't tell. Don't tell us stuff because that'd be boring. Show us stuff. Show me, show me, show me. And you go, that's great advice, but sufficiently simplified um, or perhaps not very well absorbed to take the responsibility away from the teachers and put it in the students. Um, what you end up with is the oddest thing where people go, oh, 
I've sent my book in the Second World War, so I need to show people that the Nazis are evil. And you go, can I, can I just back you up a minute? I'm not sure you do need to show us that. They're Nazis. They're a literal byword for evil. And so you end up with these absolutely bizarre scenes of people showing you that, that a character is particularly... It's, it's a Nazi. I don't know. Maybe if they raped a nun. Or if you, if you insist they could rape a nun. But it would be sort of fine if they didn't yeah. as well. We would still kind of assume they're not the, the hero of the story. Yeah, no one here's going to be like, finally! Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've waited so long for the heroic Nazi book. Yeah. Gosh, I was, it's like with comedy courses where sometimes they'll say, you need to write a list of all the things you hate. And I suppose it's like a material generating... Yeah, yeah. Or mine courses. Show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. Infuriating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, I've got the page of silence stuck in my head. I just can't believe that is, in terms read... of, no, of course I haven't. The, uh, it's fiction, isn't it? I don't, don't, dirty me hands with fiction. <laughs> I do actually, but the, the painter of silence is, if you had to make up a Booker Prize possible novel, the painter of silence. It, to be fair, it, it was the, the women's perfect, prize, but yes. That, whatever, whatever it is, that is sort of title. That, that going, yeah. Have you read the, um, the Painter of Silence? It would be like The Autumn Weaver. Yeah. Or an, anything with snow. Mm. The Allegory oh, of Snow. Snow had a terrible the allegory run. Allegory of Snow. Yeah, no, yeah. Snow did have a terrible run. Yeah. And there was a while the when sound of the colour grey appeared in titles. Over oh, no. Again, like they were like, I know that's a bestseller. I'll yeah, get that in. absolutely. Or blues into it. And you were like, mm, mm. Well, how funny, because all these people operating in isolation don't realise that for whatever reason they're all kind of. That's true. In the same zeitgeisty thing. But they know? may not get to choose their book title. Oh, no. So so it's probably not even their fault. Do, yeah. So they're probably sitting at home knowing what's wrong with it and not being allowed to, to change it. Yeah. Sorry, Call I them. interrupted. You were going to say about comedy courses. Oh, um, there was a time. Do you remember when every single person who'd gone on a comedy course walked on stage and said, um, I know what you're thinking. Oh, yeah. You're thinking I'm the bastard son of X and Y. Yes, and, I'm half this and I'm half that, yes. which means I like this, but I don't like this. I know. And it's like, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. <laughs> You'll be surprised how ungenerous it is. But <laughs> it, it wasn't, they'd obviously been told, you know, the first thing is the is the hardest bit. The, the first, you know, couple of sentences I had to win them over. And making a self-deprecating remark about your appearance is a good way of doing it because then you get it out of the way and hecklers can't do it. Mm. And, you know, and it'll be an easy, quick laugh and bang and then you can get going. So you could see how it happened. But there was just that terrible sense where you were watching sort of weird slow-mo replay one after another yes oh yes. i did a 10 minute version of that once were you the i, did, I, I know what you're thinking i did every single and then obviously it became more and more you know mutated and then at the end i just went i know what you're thinking and left balefully no one got it nice i'd like to Sounds say i know what you're thinking what's that smell sorry i've trodden in something <laughs> anyway let's move on that would have been a good over wouldn't yeah. it I know what you're thinking, and I'm thinking it too. We should all leave London. And I saw a brilliant um, James Acaster did some absolutely incredible. He's very good, isn't he? Oh my god, the man is reinventing the genre. I um, I saw him doing this bit where he was pointing out members of the audience and then just inventing these whole lives for them. But it just kept. I used to do that. I did that in 2001. What a rip-off merchant! Well, if you're listening, James, you've really gone beyond the pale. Turns out. (laughs) Before he was reinventing stuff, he was in my patent bin. <laughs> Robin, it's his patent bin. Um, I, um, that is a good idea, though. That's a good title. It was, it was really, yes. Can I point out? It was really good. And then, you know, he did this and he kept going on and on about Kenya. And, it, you know, the point of it is it's obviously things that insecurities he's really thought about how he should give up, stand up and go to Kenya. But then at the end of like 10 minutes of like, and you keep thinking you will go to Kenya, but then something else happened. And then he goes, but enough about you. And yeah. then he says, I've yeah, been, and then he sort of goes, I went through a similar time myself, mate. Like that. And it's like, oh, it's just so brilliant. 
Anyway, sorry to ruin the joke for people who are going to see it live. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's spoiled now. And then spoiled. Uh, James comes on and he's, he's just wearing these, these funny jeans. And uh, he plays all and, the characters. Yeah. He's Robin Hood. He's... <laughs> so, uh, and if you'd like to know more about that, you can hear our Mark Gatiss special. Yes. Right now, you brought some small books. I brought so small books because I came on foot. Books that, that I could easily carry. Yeah, exactly. So this is not actually your favourite books. These are your favourite light books. Yes. Well, even that's not entirely true because I had a copy of um, uh, The Man Who Planted Trees. Is it called by um, John Giotto, which I didn't bring because it just has such a nice cover. I didn't want to bash it up in a bag. Um, so, so these are these are small books, books that you don't want... give a shit about damaging. So let's we well, make it more specific. Generally, that I've already we? damaged or have already. I'm afraid, as you can see, they've generally been reviewed or read. They've so got loads of what, for the listener. I have page markers on well hundreds of them. Uh, I think by the looks of it. Um, so I brought for you. Um, the runner-up of my year's uh, Indie Foreign Fiction Prize, which mm. is The Muscle Feast by uh, Begita Vanderbeck, which oh, it's fantastically good. And it was a huge... That's it's like a, lesson. It's a set text, I think, in Germany, but it's only just been translated here after decades of not being. Um, and uh, it's very slight. Uh, as you can see, it's very short. My kind of book? Good grief, it's beautiful. It's How beautiful many pages, Josie? Will I be able to do it or not? I oh, think you've mate, got it in you. laughing. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. One second. It's, uh... And a lot of those are adverts at the back. Oh, the 105. Oh, I can do it. I can She's do that one. She's a woman after my own heart. Oh, yeah. Imagine that being your set text. Can what you? What a joy that must be. What work, in fact, there, so in terms of family and it's about... It's it's called the Muscle Feast, and it is about a mother and two children, and they're preparing muscles um, for the father because he likes them. Although it becomes relatively clear relatively quickly um, that none of them particularly does, um, and they're preparing muscles for when he comes home, and that's that's the whole book. And it's an allegory for East Germany. It's just beautiful, just beautiful, and brilliantly written, incredibly clever, incredibly sinister, um, and. Um, it's it's well I, I it's just one of those books where I've been telling people to read it for a year and a half now it feels like ever since I read it for the Indie Foreign Fiction Prize um, and so I'm still doing it it's incredibly short it's really slight but it's just the most beautiful masterclass in family dynamics and um, and fear and habit and ritual and all of those things. What were your set texts when you were... Did you? I presume you did A-level English, did you? It's hilarious that you would think that. No, I did treble classics because I was such an... Oh, yeah, I did Latin, Greek and ancient history. That was your A-level. Oh, what yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah. I don't even you? have an A-level in English and yet they keep letting me judge book prizes. It's like there's been some hilarious mistake. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm much better at um, dead languages than anybody basically between um, the fall of the Roman Empire and... Pretty much Sherlock Holmes. I, I know virtually ages, nothing. You're better than all the Dark Ages. Yeah, I'm good until yeah. So my set texts, since you ask, were oh, and I'm glad you asked because I brought one. Um, <laughs> Hannibal's Crossing of the Alps from Livy. That's Livy Book Twenty One with the Intonsi and Culti, the shaggy shabby men, um, as uh, uh, Hannibal crosses the Alps with his elephants. Um, I like how this is called a Penguin 60s classic. Yeah, it was for the 60th from... anniversary of uh, Penguin. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I thought, I, I just assumed there must be some connection to the 1960s. And I was nope, just uh-huh. like, how funny, because it's actually a thousand, Th- two thousand is, years 2000, old. Yeah, <laughs> when Penguin fell in love with the scamming small book thing, which is a great idea. There's they then went on to the great ideas, uh, which ran for about... Four little lots of 20 Yeah, and then they did Penguin they 70s for the 70th this. anniversary yeah. of Penguin. Um, and so they're very good for classics because, as you can see, I brought two because they're very light. Uh, and the other f- is um, the Aristophanes Lysistrata, which is my very favourite comic play. 
But why were you brought to... What was it? At what age did you think that, right, this is the classics, this is it. Yeah. I, I I will stand on the outside of popular culture I and laugh in dead languages true. at these people. <laughs> and every now and again, though, just when they think, oh, she only likes dead languages things, then I'll watch Rabid Grannies or <laughs> Tromeo and Juliet. Um, I started doing... I had to do classical... What's it called? Like classical civilization or Roman life or something like that when I was 11. Um, and then I started Latin when I was 12 and Greek when I was 14. And then when I was sitting my GCSEs, um, I had one brief kind of mental schism um, in my GCSE Greek paper, first GCSE Greek paper, where I looked at it and thought, I don't know how I'm supposed to be able to answer questions on this. It's in Greek. <laughs> That's been some kind of terrible mistake. Um, and then my brain kind of refitted and it was all fine. And I knew right then as I was writing that exact exam um, that I couldn't give either of them up. Um, and I'd already said I would do ancient history. I thought I wouldn't. I thought I would drop Greek, which went on to become the thing I liked the most. Um, and so luckily my school very sweetly made a, an effort and let me carry on doing all three. So, yeah, no, it's been it's been my life since I was 11. But did it, was there any point when you got to A-level that some people were saying, well, in terms of, you know, did anyone, for instance, the, the practicality of it, were, were people because it was such, you know, to do three... Yeah, it was esoteric like, yeah. even then. Yeah. Um, you're not that old. Yeah, it's not like if anyone's thinking, well, Natalie Haynes must be in her late 90s. You know, the, the, that's when you were allowed to do that. You know, yeah. you're only in your 30s. So the... Oh, bless you, Robin. Oh, you, have you passed over as well? I've just shunted well? into 40. Yeah. Oh, well done. Oh, that's yeah, what I love, I all the young people. It's awful, isn't it? It's, it's funny just awful. how quick it is, isn't it? Yeah. Don't say that. Don't remind people of the finite nature of life. We're going to be yeah. geeing them up. I mean, it's a laugh. Much yeah. better, thank you, Josie. But that's why it's nice to aim for things that are two thousand years old because it gives you a sense of perspective. Um, well, this is funny that we've part. been speaking to an astronaut and now we're speaking about the classics, and it is a, yes. a nice remove from like aren't London house prices inaccessible? Absolutely. You know I mean? If only because I think I'm right to say the very first piece of um, sci-fi, the very first piece of man on the moon fiction is classical is oh, a satire word. by Lucian called The True Histories and they are of course not true uh, they are in every way false um, and uh, in The True Histories they go to the moon um, and uh, the king of the moon and the king of the sun are um, having prox proxy wars so they have these weird alien races fighting each other um, and our heroes are sort of thrown into the midst of it all. And so it's the very earliest piece of sci-fi. It's, it's my guys. It's the Romans. Oh, well, That's... I think someone said it was Frankenstein recently, so were they going to egg well, on their face? Well, they are mistaken. That might be really interesting because horror, I, I don't ever think of that period as being... Even though, obviously, like, all the myths are super imaginative, I still yeah. think of that as within the culture somehow. Like, I don't think of it as, like, speculative, imaginative fiction. Yeah, nope, there they were. I mean, I, sp I suppose for a start you have people... All the planets and um, heavenly bodies are, are gods as well, so yeah. that makes them a bit more interesting. But yeah, the idea that we could get to the moon, as far as I know, Lucian is the very earliest. So that's two thousand years ago. Right. So this gets us to Homer. Werewolves and all go kinds of things. Back. So they're, they're the earliest horror too. Now we haven't on any of these podcasts talked about Julian James's book about the bicameral mind. So you, as an expert, will you tell me this right? Homer, I only found out recently, reasonably recently. Homer isn't a person. Probably Homer, not. Homer no, probably is not. There, there, there are uh, you know the, the Homer. Yeah, it's a like name Santa. we use. Yes. yes. Yeah. Not exactly like Santa. But with, well, maybe like but Santa. But with longer lasting gifts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Iliad and Odyssey yep. apparently uh, considered to be written by different people. 
Um, perhaps different within within themselves as well as different from each other. Yeah. Yes. So, and someone in the Julian Jaynes book, uh, there is an argument which says that we Homer proves, or is some of the proof rather than proof, sorry, is, is some of the evidence to suggest that human beings only got a kind of inner monologue uh, within what would that be? When's Iliad? Um, th- it was written in the 7th or maybe early, probably the 7th, but maybe just about the 6th century. Right, BCE. so we're talking about that as being yeah. around the time of the beginning of the probably Inner Monologue around because we see BC. the difference between the Odyssey and the Iliad. Yes, but the Odyssey is... I always loved the Iliad. Actually, that's not true. When I read the Iliad at school, um, I hated it because um, I was given book six, which is the soap opera where Hector returns from the battlefield and goes to see Andromache um, and he she's holding a Styanax, their child, and Hector's um, wearing his helmet with the plume on it and the plume fronts the child and the child cries, yeah, rubbish. And then I got to university and they made me read book one and book one is basically just a lot of men engaging in a pissing contest and I didn't get that either. And the Odyssey I loved... Then straight. I moved to London. Yeah. <laughs> and it was all... Oh, wait. Um, and the... Odyssey, I got straight away because, of course, it's it, it, you can quite easily read the Odyssey as a children's story, as an adventure story. Um, although it's incredibly structurally complicated. There's you know stories within stories and flashbacks and things happening simultaneously on different sides of the narrative. So it's unbelievably complex as these things go. But then when I um, came back to the Iliad, when I guess about 24, 25, I was like, uh, oh, now I get it. So now I would kind of think of myself as an Iliad fan. Um, but it, I'm doing the Odyssey a grave disservice in my mind to, to to put it in second place because certainly in terms of its structure, it's just enormously complicated. We get you know a story that's happening um, and, and another story within that being recounted. So we're trying to run two timelines, and then Telemachus is trying to do his thing at the same time as Odysseus is trying to get home. So there's a third one. And um, if you haven't read uh, Margaret Atwood's Penelope ad, the um, version of very very short, and I nearly brought that. I got that as my um, Christmas present last year, but I haven't read it yet. It's just wonderful. It's so clever and brilliant and beautiful about about um, Odysseus's return home and the incredible brutality of his return. Because it's sort of we always think of it as quite a romantic thing, right? He has to turn up and perform a, a feat of strength, which always now makes me think of um, Festivus. Um, <laughs> a Festivus to the rest of us. Oh, I'll come home and etc. Um, I saw Jeff Capes. There you go. So we've all got our thing. So he turns up and has to string a, a really difficult to use bow and then shoot an arrow through crossed axes. Um, and people have spent literally whole careers trying to work out how, how the axes work, how they're crossed and how the and how the bow works. And, you know, you can I mean, literally hold dissertations written on the exact shape of the bow and so on. And then uh, he he's the only person out of all the suitors for his wife, Penelope, he's in disguise, um, who can string the bow and then shoot the arrow through the axes as they go and then that's how they kind of that's his homecoming and then he slaughters everybody who's been um living it up at his expense not just the suitors who've been pestering his wife but uh the the maidservants who've sort of been helping them which is after all their job because they are slaves so it's a pretty brutal it's a pretty brutal homecoming but uh, it's an amazing also it's not it's not a turn on which bit for her to see the stringing of the bow and the shooting through the axes oh no that bit's fine but oh yeah you're hot for that you're gonna be like you know, it's, uh, everyone's got a peccadillo. That's true. Yeah, that's true. You some know, people. but yeah. Simon Armitage just did a really, really great version of the Odyssey at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, um, in which uh, set mostly now and sort of partly also then. Um, but the mostly now bit, the suitors are paparazzi. So Odysseus, oh. in his version, is a sort of government minister who's gone off the rails, um, and so Penelope is being besieged by paparazzi. It's just a really smart way of making it work. Yeah. 
because you mentioned Simon Armitage, something I don't think we've mentioned on this podcast, which everyone must find if they have not heard it or seen it on BBC Four. Uh, did you see Black Roses? Mm-mm. which is uh, a phenomenal piece of work. Uh, it is about the true story of Sophie Lancaster, who was uh, basically beaten to the death. The sweet, sad goth. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, what's this? What, this? It was a Radio 4, they adapted for Radio 4, and then it was, uh, and it started the Manchester Royal Exchange, and then was made for BBC4 as well. Oh, I this completely. Uh, and what it has is it has Sylvie Lancaster, who... Sophie's mother takes her originally used actually her and then in the TV version it uses Julie Hesmond. Oh, I love her Hesmond. She um, and then mixes that with Simon Armitage writing poems, uh, imagined poems of the thoughts of Sophie Lancaster, and it is probably one of the greatest pieces of art that is real. Um, When did that happen? uh, The BBC Four version was broadcast about a month ago. Uh, You can probably also find uh, this would be what eight years ago, I think now. Wow. And it's an inc- you know that bit where I don't know we probably haven't talked about it, but it is that bit where you go art and reality and the use to create an incredibly powerful thing about well it's it's about aggression and about being something of an outsider in a community and all of these different things. Wow. Yeah, punishment of the other. And huh. it's an incredible you know I mean the the words of Sylvia Lancaster are incredible and uh, and it's just it's I, I've met her on a few occasions and you look into and and just you know funny person and and but then every now and again you look into her and you think what you have experienced. Yeah, yeah. And Simon Armitage to to you know to try and give voice. So there we go. That is anyway. That That's was an what I would say is an, an incredible piece of work. And tell me with a very good point as well. Black roses, Thank and uh, it is the only. I don't wear many wristbands, but I maintain my Sophie Lancaster oh. wristband, and also they do things like uh, B- uh, Bloodstock, the uh, great big metally uh, kind of uh, festival. They they have a Sophie Lancaster stage. That lovely Fantastic. thing where you go, I really like, you know, fans of, of heavy rock are often very sweet natured and charming people. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I know that your your partner's quite a fan of heavy he, rock. And, he is uh, just such a man. Yeah. I, know, I know the love of just such a man, and you're huh. right, of course. So this is, again, it, what drew you to, apart from, I, I'm basically seeing the Osborne book of uh, Living in Roman Times, oh, uh, or Living in Greek Times, both those. They were that. such beautiful books, and they, they were, you know, one of the books I took out most often from the library. But to be drawn to that... Uh, what was the first story that really captured you? The, the actual kind, the first time that you sat down and read a complete classic. I don't know what the very first was. Um, I, I know the first time when I thought I'll never stop this. This is me and now for the long haul. Um, and that was um, I would have been, I think, sixteen, and my dad drove me down to London, where I grew up, as you know, in Birmingham. Um, and my dad drove me down to London because Diana Rigg, um, on whom he had quite rightly had a crush since uh, mm. the Avengers brackets, not the new kind, um, uh, was playing... Oh, hang on. Well, I mean, yeah, not the, but there's the Avengers, the new Avengers, and then there's the Avengers that's new. Exactly, it's a confusing right? It's, big, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a dark kind. time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Mrs. Peel, Avengers, let's go with for clarity. Um, uh, she was playing Medea um, in the Euripides uh, adaptation of the Euripides um, play at the Almeida, uh, a theatre which of course I had never heard of because why would you um, if you grew up 110 miles away um, and, uh, and so he said oh you know I'd like to go and see this and I was like oh great so my mum came and I came and he drove us down and um, and it was absolutely spectacular so that must now be 20 something years ago um, and uh, A she was as you would expect just 
devastating and brilliant. And at every stage, you knew perfectly well that this was a woman you would not wrong twice. Um, but the staging was brilliant and really kind of um, bleak and empty. And the moment where she reveals, sorry to spoil the ending, but you've had two and a half thousand years to read it. Um, the moment where she reveals her children's bodies at the end, she kind of, at least as I remember it, and I do realise that memory isn't 100% accurate, um, she she kind of smacked that these the the back of the stage was metal um and she smacked the back of the wall and it made this sort of terrifying sound and these two metal panels fell down and revealed these two bodies behind them and so the noise was deafening and it was terrifying and i thought then a i like this place so much i think i'll probably never have children um and b uh this is me in now i'm in euripides you've got me yeah. Now, Diana Rigg also, of course, starred in Theatre of Blood with Vincent Price, oh, where he plays Edwin Lionheart, who is getting yeah. revenge oh, yes. on the critics. Yes, yes. So, I just watched that really recently. It's such a good Meredith Merridew, this is your dish. <laughs> One of my favourite moments in any film. And uh, though I did not enjoy the theatre adaptation. Did you come to the theatre adaptation? I did like it. Oh, I don't I think you did came like it. I'm sorry. Who was in it? Jim Broadbent. Yeah. Yeah. What, Jim Broadbent. No, exactly. How bad could it be? He turned yeah. Edwin Lionheart just into a terrible Actor, but oh. Edwin Lionheart isn't a terrible actor. He's, he's merely an actor out of touch. So he yeah. is a great Shakespearean actor filled yeah, with yeah, yeah, melodrama yeah. and bombast. Yeah, he's just too late, isn't he? He's a few few decades too late for his career to have gone as it should have. Oh, so good. Yeah. Um, so the um, your classical version. Yes. Of uh, so we say it's, it's about a translator whose whose adaptations are terribly reviewed, and he takes his revenge on the literary critics in different styles from the greats. Yes. What murders shall we be seeing in your version of Theatre of Blood Two? Mm, well, I suppose the the goriest probably is Thyestes, isn't it? Who's made to eat his own children in a pie. Oh. So the so Titanicus pie stuff yeah, is all th- that's all that owes a little bit of something to the myth of Thyestes, yeah. And we were just saying that is the favourite bit, that's my favourite of the horrible murders in, in Theatre of, of Blood where Robert Morley yeah. uh, eats his own poodles. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so and I, what, and to be fair in the stage version people gasped at that point. We didn't give a shit it turned out about, was it Troilus and Cressida where they get, and there was the first murder Well that's really the hard because that's a horse drag, dragging thing isn't it? <gasps> but on stage they're speared through weren't they? And we were like, oh this is brilliant and and then when the poodles came on, they had to have a really visible, we swapped the real dogs for fake dogs, because clearly what had happened earlier in the run was that people were going, oh, the dogs! And you go, we're so English. Except <laughs> so, for me, I didn't. Uh, I was very disappointed. No, I did dogs. think that Betty Bourne did a very good uh, Meredith Meridue. Yep. Um, I um, was, I sat, I bumped into a friend of mine on the tube uh, the other day, and he's doing a PhD in theatre staff. From backstage theatre staff. How interesting. Elizabethan times until now. Incredibly. Interesting. There are loads of things that have become traditions through the practical things that people used to have to do in Elizabethan times backstage and like he, he thinks about it in terms of who's then in terms of like how people are paid for le- their labour like how it's structured in terms of the hours and stuff like that and what it was like then and what it's like now but he was telling me that there was a big period sort of I guess in that coincided with the Industrial Revolution, where they were suddenly able to build better girders. So they were able to build bigger auditoriums. And then they had to build kind of stadium spectacles in the theatre. So they would have... They realised that people really loved seeing an animal splashing about in the water. So they were like, we need to write plays that showcase animals splashing about in the water. So there'd be like elephants sliding down slides or like they would always put 
put a scene in with horses running through some water. Yes, because it looks so good. People go crazy yeah. for that. Free Willy. Let's have a version of Free Willy done at the Globe. <laughs> Why not? It's a mystery that with all the other films turned into musicals yeah. that that doesn't exist. Isn't and, you it? Know, to a little to bit. Set, set in perhaps the middle of the 16th century. Lovely. Yeah. So, your top murder. Oh, well then, th- so oh. Thyestes gets a good point for that. Why did he have to do it? What did he do wrong? Uh, there's a lifelong the enmity um, between one bit of the house of, uh, of Atreus and the other bit. Um, and so I think it's Atreus who makes Thyestes eat his children. Um, but then, of course, the payback for the sons of Atreus is that they are Agamemnon and Menelaus, so it doesn't go superly well for them. Agamemnon, once again, I spoil, um, manages to uh, sacrifice his own daughter to get to Troy uh, to reclaim Menelaus's wife. And then uh, when he gets back with Cassandra in tow, he is murdered by his wife, Clytemnestra, oh. in the bath. Um, and her partner in that crime, and indeed her sexual partner at that point, is Aegisthus, who is of the other side, of the Thyestes side. of the, So it's a proper, you know, this never ends. Um, they benefit just from just from counselling. Mm, but the, the most, oh, I, in a way, the saddest, and I've never written it or done anything with it, um, partly because I read the Ted Hughes version of it in Ovid, his version of Ovid's Metamorphoses, and it's so good. It's one of those things where you go, oh, well, nobody needs to adapt that for another hundred years. That's done. Bottled, well done. Um and that is, I mean, all of the Ted Hughes metamorphoses is terrific, but um, his version of Philomela and Procne. Um, do you know this story? No. Um, so um, a man named Terius is married to, and it depends on the version of the myth, but he's married to one of the sisters, let us say Philomela, uh, because I can't entirely remember, but I think it is in this version. Um, and uh, he rapes her sister, Procne. Um, and because it is a pre-literate society, um, he cuts out her tongue. Because then she'll never be able to tell anybody Again, what happened. Oh, I do Andronicus, remember this. Right? Now. I remember I brought um, this out now. And so, and so she stitches it. She sews it into a tapestry. So her sister finds out what happens. And it'd take um, a bloody long while as well. So we'd be like, oh, example. so what happened? You would just run. I'll, I'll come back in a week. Yeah, I'll do a chain stitch, shall we? Go, go more quickly. Um, and so uh, they uh, feed him, I think. Uh, I'm right to say his children uh, or his son. Um, and the, the awfulness of their story is so so great and profound that the gods eventually have pity on them and turn them all into birds so he becomes a is it called a hoopoo the little Hupo, bird yeah yeah, yeah another one, um, one becomes, a little bit of a tough one yeah tough, yeah one becomes a nightingale I think and one becomes something else so it's an incredibly sad story I think Philomena uh, is a nightingale yeah that's it's so funny the weird fragments of classical um classical mythology I guess that I've picked that up make their way through without yeah. having read any which is to my shame and uh, sadness but yeah, the weird things that I know, like, yeah, yeah. that is definitely there that. Is. Yeah. Well, you're going to read a lot more now, found these dinky tiny yes. ones, the old Penguin 60s. Yeah. Sorry, so I, feel like I, your, I got overexcited and I interrupted. And no, it's right. sure, sure, isn't it? That's what's yeah. supposed to happen. Talk, I know, but it was interesting and I didn't want to. Oh, you haven't told your favourite murder. Uh, from anything? Oh, no, not favourite murder ever. Uh, we'll deal with that as a special, as a countdown show. Top hundred. Oh uh, no, the uh, in within uh, theatre of blood or beyond. If you want to take, take some classical mythology, I could tell you the only quote that I still remember from Titus Andronicus that I learnt for my finals. Go on then. For now, I stand as one upon a rock, environed by a wilderness of sea, and then Rome is but a wilderness of tigers. Its prey is me and mine. And the reason I learnt both those quotes is the use of the word wilderness, which very I nice. find very interesting. I did not do well in the exam, but I can still remember them, so... Yeah, so who's the real victim? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, classical uh, murders, though, in the in Theatre of Blood? Uh, or you could have a bond with Dr. Fibes Dr. Fibes rise again, which isn't really as good. <laughs> what about you? What, my fat I've already told you, Meredith Meridue, this is your dish, having to eat his poodles. 
I liked that one a lot. I can't really remember it. Also, Horace, stop snoring. Oh. That's very good. That's one yeah. of my favourite bits with Arthur Lowe's head. Oh. Imagine, I wonder who owns Arthur Lowe's head now. They throw it. Do they throw the head? Well, what happened? No, the head is he's uh, in the bed. She shakes him, and the yes, head yes, drops yes. off. And then the maid comes in, and she screams. See, yes. I didn't bother oh, with all that screamed. classical stuff. I just watched Vincent Price films. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Same I have time. actually read Edgar. That's the thing. Edgar Allan Poe did actually read though. Uh, so I should get get round to that. So let's go, sorry. Going back to we have three, yes. two more books left, really. Uh, yeah, I brought well. I brought three more, but you don't have to have them. So I brought you another Penguin sixty because they're so small, and that was the Lysistrata. Uh, if only because it's so topical. Because now um, there's a new film of it uh, called Shirak. Is that the sex strike? Yes, it yes. exactly is. See. Yeah, Why exactly. do I know that? That's a very popular adaptation as well, isn't it? That's yeah. often often crops up, that one. It does. So I brought that because uh, it was small and gratifying and because I like the fact that um, within a few decades of democracy existing anywhere in the world, somebody, even as a joke, even a comedian and a conservative small C uh, comedian at that, was saying, what would happen if women had political power? And the answer is um, they can't, so they'll have to use some other mechanism uh, mm. to get their own way. But I like the fact that from the very beginning of people having any kind of political say somebody was wondering how women would get that even if it took another 2300 years for it to come to fruition at my school um there was a i I did english and not classics but my friend did classics my really good friend alice and this was sort of a this and frogs were like frogs is great real thrills and it was like a real influence on the school because they were like especially when like about sex or the lack of like having to talk about sex in it was yeah. such a big deal for the school. Yes, <laughs> quite. It was see, such a discourse. And see, the frogs, I can still quote, even though the the Penguin classic uh, adaptation of the frogs, the frogs chorus, brekka kekex, brekka kekex, coax, coax, coax. We are the musical frogs who live in the marshes and bogs and sweet as a hymn we sing as we swim. Brekka kekex, brekka kekex, coax, coax, coax. That's what I have instead of Titus Andronicus. Huh. <laughs> we can and safely course, say slightly lower red. <laughs> later beautifully put into song by Paul McCartney. I'm sure you're right, but no, I no, can't... It, Bear him, so ridic- I'll never know. You know the ridiculous frog chorus he had his song. <gasps> yeah, but can we just oh, yeah, no, again remind, right? Yeah, no, I blanked it out. It was a terrible blanked joke. Blanked it out. No, 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 but I have to remind everyone, right? everyone who ever does the joke, and I say it's every time he goes, ah, Paul McCartney, uh, he wrote Imagine and all brilliant stuff. What did, uh, I mean, John Lennon wrote Imagine everything, and then Paul McCartney wrote the frog chorus. He wrote it for a film, a cartoon of Rupert Bear. He didn't write it going, I'm writing this as an adult thing, like John Lennon. No, but I just, I'm, I'm not really, I don't care I about either. a funny joke. But what worries me exactly is when the same. People, she sees of her ways now. All she's I'm sad saying, is, all I'm saying is Paul McCartney didn't go this is probably the most important work I've ever written. He just wrote it for an animation involving Rupert Bear. I thought it was I low hanging sick fruit. of you attacking Paul McCartney. But while I'm here, oh, okay. one, Paul McCartney, you won the game, game over, you don't need to keep trying. Number two, Ringo Starr is the best Beatle. Oh, we're Deal not back it. to this Ringo Starr thing again. This is going to drag Body on. of an Adonis, face of a poet, Voice of a tank engine. Okay, then I'll go and go with Barry Wom. Now, yes. uh, two more books. Sorry. I did. I brought you two more books. Um, one, Don't be sorry. Is, I know um, you've got this Ringo thing going on. One which long. is uh, classics related but non-fiction because I thought if I only bring fiction you'll be sad. Um, and one which is a novel, um, a reworking of Henry James. So you can choose oh, which one you have. Oh, Henry hang James. on. Well, this is the thing, right? Because I don't read very much. I'm trying to get more into fiction, right? And I do like books, but I went through a long period of time where I go, fiction's just a story. I need non-fiction to fill my brain with non-fiction facts. Non-fiction is a story too. Uh, but that's the thing uh, that now, what do you think? When you were saying earlier on about the Booker Prize, about the fact that you would go, Oh, well, actually, I'm learning many things. You do learn many things. So can you give me a good example of one of those books where you think, well, this actually, from this, has now been a springboard 
into, like we mentioned Alan Moore before and something like, well, a lot of his work, but something like Lost Girls is a springboard into a huge cultural history mm. as well. Mm. Yeah, no, all generally all history between the fall of the Roman Empire and at least Victorian kind of times, I don't know very much about. I must be pretty much the only person who, when they read Wolf Hall, was genuinely turning the pages for the, oh, what's going to happen? And bring out the bodies. I was like, you're kidding me, beheaded all the way through. It's just like, I, I probably, I mean, I kind of knew at some level um, that Henry VIII had been married six times and that some of them had been beheaded, but I had no idea who and in which wow. order. You so you have like properly, a kings and queens fascination. I totally school. didn't. No, I wasn't interested. I can, all the Lucius and Drusus Caesars, uh, any time you like. Um, wow. I can do all the dates of Roman em- emperors for ages, but yeah, no, British That's history. a classier breed of childhood it, knowledge. I think what it is, is just, I, I think I just, somehow felt that it was boring in a way that I didn't find classics. I had a not particularly exciting history teacher, not her fault, I'm sure, but mine. Um, and so I just wasn't particularly engaged. So I sort of dismissed it as a whole category of knowledge. And it's only in my 30s that I went, oh, I'd quite like to know something about British or, or indeed European history. And, it, you know, people do keep coming back to the same thing. So if you for the indie foreign fiction, all European fiction skewed very heavily towards Holocaust and post-Holocaust narratives still now, even after all this time. You know, that it's the, the central, in the same way that we're still writing about the Blitz, they are still writing about the Holocaust and um, and how that uh, has it continues to have an impact on um, the way people write now. And I think that's probably partly because um, a kind of current generation of novelists, grandparents were alive then. So that that's still, for want of better words, it's still kind of folk knowledge. It's still knowledge that they have a direct access to. Um, but yeah, I definitely knew nothing about the New Zealand gold rush before I read The Luminaries. Um, and by the time I'd read it three times, I was like, you know, I feel like I have a reasonable working knowledge. I'm, I'm not saying I could definitely mine for gold, but I feel like if I had to, I, I, I've got a head start. You could get your way around a pan. I feel yeah. like I could. Yeah, I feel like I have a slight, you know, I, I understand that California happened first. I, know, I felt like I knew more. And then when I went to New Zealand this year, I was like, I feel... A, slightly like I know what's going on here, and B, like a national hero, because everywhere I got introduced on stage, they said, oh, she was on the uh, Booker committee that gave the prize to Eleanor Catton, and everyone went, <gasps> and I was like, you're welcome, thinking I did nothing. It was just her book. That's brilliant. But yeah, I took all Did the you like New Zealand? I loved it. Yeah, I Michael Legg was banging on about how much Michael Legg, who I do a, uh, a podcast, uh, vitriol music thing, and tour around with every now and again. And he, I thought he'd had a good time there because of what he put up on Facebook. But it turns out he was ironically putting up much of his... Uh, and he, when we did Pointless Anger, Righteous Art, which is a show where we just talk about what we're angry about, yes. he kept every night being angry about New Zealand and people refused to have it. Yeah, because that's bad. Who votes that's Pointless Anger? We all do. New Zealand looks very enjoyable as it's a holiday delightful. destination. It's just delightful. A, everyone's nice to you all the time. And B, um, you do an event at a book festival and then you go whale watching. Hello, mm. that does not happen in Cheltenham, and I love Cheltenham Book Festival, but whale watching is not a big part of it. If you do go whale watching in Cheltenham, it's a very melancholy affair. It is. How did you get this far out of the river? Yes, it's rotting now. Yes, it oh, is a sad time. I'm so naive that I just forgot that espionage still existed, and it has blown my mind that I had no idea that it's based in Cheltenham. Based. Yeah, yeah it, it seems to me so incongruous. Yeah, because like, spies have got lovely Georgian houses, haven't they? <laughs> Georgian houses and the posh school for the kids. Yes, posh school for the kids, like. That's where our spies are. This place that, honestly, crowds aren't that. They're well, that perhaps I can uh, recommend the uh, Nigel Havers Michael Caine movie, The Whistleblower. 
Well, There's my a bit of a tried... denouement with John Gielgud. Worth it. <laughs> my mum tried to get me to watch The Ipcrest File when I was a child. Well, it's I brilliant. loathe it's... The Ipcrest oh, File. Oh, you're an idiot. I can't do you hate it. it. Idiot. Do why do, why do you hate it? it? What's wrong with it? Oh, I just find it really tiresome, Robin. I don't it's brilliant. It's one of the greatest soundtracks of any uh, movie. It's That's John Barry's soundtrack. It's fantastic. Michael Caine is brilliant. That bit where he the f- puts glass on fire. The bit when he's choosing mushrooms and telling not to get sliced mushrooms in it. I can't believe it. I'm good going. Ha! He really is going. You find out what she likes. I don't care. Well, thank God. Don't take it over and don't say it's only your podcast either. <laughs> it's the Josie in, but... Long Women's <laughs> Podcast for Women. <laughs> yes. But that said, what about Funeral in Berlin? I've never seen it. Well, that's not I... as good anyway, so you would like that All even right, less. All right, then. What about... Then we've saved me some time, that's a result. Let's think of one other... I'm so oh, glad you're here Billion Dollar Brain's kind of interesting, because Ken Russell is doing a spy movie. Oh, that does I sound interesting. I don't feel like I've seen it. Okay. I don't feel like I have. So your like final choice? Oh, the Henry James. I want to talk about the Henry James. One. Sorry, yeah, it's Cynthia Rosick's oh, Foreign Bodies, um, which is uh, it was shortlisted my year for the Women's Prize for Fiction, um, and what there was it? Uh, it was won by Madeline Miller with the Song of Achilles. Okay. Um, oh, and, uh, Achilles bias. <laughs> but there was her and um, Anne Enright's The Forgotten Walls, which is <gasps> spectacular. If you haven't read it, I can't recommend it enough. It is a, a narrative about an incredibly um, heady uh, affair. Um, but it's also a, a sort of parable of the housing crisis and, and crash. Wow, and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Anne Enright's Forgotten Walls is just wonderful. Well, Anne Enright um, is somebody whose work is just like steadily building it's up. It's insane how good it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's insane how good it is. But um, my year was, uh, yeah, Anna, so Anne and, and, and Patchett with State of Wonder, which is the one set in the Brazilian rainforest. Um, and, uh, I'm a big fan of that kind of thing because I like very small frogs. Yeah, you Are there love any very rainforest, small frogs don't you? in it. Yeah, loads. Yes, come on for the win. And I think I'm right to say that out of out of that shortlist, I think fully three of them. One of them was Ozick, who um, has specifically sort of reworked Henry James. One was Patchett, um, who referenced him very heavily and one of the others all and literally half our shortlist had claimed Henry James as their main inspiration I was like, oh. how many times did I vote again I felt kind of bad I really like Henry James but I didn't know it showed this badly but also how interesting that in that, that couple of years that's what's happening there's a little Henry James flurry yeah like this kind of thing fascinates me that there must be this feeling in the ground that yeah. that's you know or you know you've got all those the little consequences of things coming back into fashion that you probably couldn't round up because they'd be so esoteric and strange. Do you yeah, know what I yeah. mean? No, I know. There was my book a year. We had a, a flurry of um, of sinkholes. Huh. A, a flurry of them, I tell you. And it was a sort of weird kind of gothic vibe going on. And it was kind of... It was one of those things where you sort of looked back and a couple of years earlier there had been a flurry in the real world of sinkholes mm-hmm. and now there's been another real flurry of them. So I reckon in two or three years' time there's going to be another set of sinkhole books. But even but that, that got started because one guy in local news was like, fuck it, we'll report on that. Someone else in local news three weeks later was like, hey, I think there's been a sinkhole over here, we'll report on that. Do you know what I mean? Like everything is so just... Yeah. Well, there was that Sylvia Plath quote in her journal, the... 1952, uh, the, near the beginning, where she's 18 years old, and she's saying, "Oh, it rained today," and I was going to write a poem, and then I realised that I'd read something from an editor who went, "Every time it rains, ha! the next day in the post, you get all the poets writing a poem called Rain." <laughs> Mind you, I found my excellent poem Autumn recently <laughs> when I was nine. It made it into the school magazine. I can't remember what I said about leaves. I used but it to was write chilling. I bet it was. <laughs> the, I, uh, I bet it was incisive. I, what I love about issue-based the... poems about war. 
Homelessness. What, when you were nine? The rainforest, yeah. Yeah, she's very precocious. Oh, God. The, uh, I, I just like the fact that this is on the back of the reviews of, of uh, foreign bodies is uh, New York Times, New York Times book review. New Yorker, and then right at the end, Washington Post, whatever that shitty city is. <laughs> Just uh, yeah. everyone in New York likes this. So, huh. so if you live in the Midwest and you haven't read it, well, read it because it's what New York is like. <laughs> I may be wrong, but I think she might live in New York, so perhaps it's more potent to her, the reviews from there. Yeah, I know, but still. Sorry. It's a bit weird, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, sorry to bring in boring facts. No, I know. Well, no, but that's not how most books... I mean, otherwise, when you go, uh, tragically, Daphne du Maurier lived in Cornwall, so the only reviews are from the Survives <laughs> Gazette. They were the only ones from the Survives Gazette. Says, yeah. normally I do the food reviews. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> The Paint and Observer has not been astounded as much as... Uh, anyway, so the, actually, painting's just on the border, isn't it? But I tell you what... That, we, that's painting, I think, still in Devon. If you really Fucking hell, Daphne du Maurier well would not want a review from painting. Or from one of the llamas. Mm. And your final book. Uh, my final book. I brought you a piece of non-fiction um, because I thought otherwise you'd be sad. Uh, and that is The Art of the Body by Michael Squire, um, who teaches at uh, King's College London. Um, and I read it this year, so those page tags are really recent. Very and I fresh. read it. Oh, it's got loads of pictures in it. Oh, it really does. Yeah, because it's all about statues and oh, art and other such statues things. Statues as well. They men. really are. And I made a documentary for BBC Four earlier this year um, for their uh, for the British Museum's exhibition on the body in ancient Greece. Um, and so the documentary was called The Body Beautiful, I think, um, about how our ideals of beauty have changed through time. And I interviewed Michael Squire for it um, and basically cribbed everything I knew for it from his book. Uh, so I thought the least I could do was bring it in and let you see how good it is. But yeah, anything you ever needed to know about, yeah, you know, famous Myron sculpture of the discus thrower or, um, yeah, it's it's all, it's such a good book um, and really beautifully and funnily written and he is the only person that I've ever interviewed where I've said you know this thing that's in your book where you point it out and it's really um, clever and interesting and funny can you say that on camera and he goes yeah do you want to say it and you go no you say it you thought of it it's really clever and funny he's exactly that self-effacing but was just a brilliant interviewee and it's a wonderful book well, I think that this podcast has proved that when we do take over from Melvin Bragg as a kind of mixed-gender Siamese twin, yeah. it'll f at last, in our time, we'll have phrases like, oh, I hope there's little frogs in it, or ooh, look, pictures. <laughs> so, thank you very much, Natalie Haynes. You are super welcome. That was so Josie Long, Ruminances, Book Shambles, and I would like to thank some of the people... Who made this broadcast possible? And I'm sorry really that you had to leave because of the unsavoury discourse about the Ipcrest file. Well, it's it's a really great film, I think. I, I love a Gordon it. Jackson. I, feel bad. So Gordon I do Jackson love Gordon Jackson. Is, have you seen the shooting uh, party? It is the best Gordon Jackson death on film. Is it? Out really, of all the available options. I, I was telling uh, Mark Gates about this, so I couldn't believe he hadn't heard of it. Have you seen Talking Pictures TV? No. <gasps> it's just really like C grade. How did you think I would have heard of it if Mark Gatiss hadn't heard well, of it? Well, he was amazing. He is it, so it, much it's nerdier a, than a, I am. A, a, a channel which shows lots of really like kind of quota quickie British movies made in the 50s, some of them in the 60s, someone like Gordon Jackson. In fact, the one that I watched the other day, The Delavine Affair, Gordon Jackson was easily the best thing in it. Uh, That's always It's true. got lots of actors who only worked for two or three years before moving to another country or starting a different kind of life. Uh, and it's then got people you know quite well in short dramas that don't quite work at the end. 
uh, strong room uh, with Darren Brown. But anyway, you will like talking Unexpected pictures. Unexpected bonus fact. Really, uh, and then sometimes little interviews with people who are very old. So thank you very much to Natalie Hayes, to Josie Long. Thank you very much to Trent, who is our uh, outside the window juice who looks Trent. things up for us and is very good at editing things, taking out slander and stuff like that. Hopefully. Uh, and you can see more of his work and our work at cosmicgenome.com and then specifically the podcast, which is at cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. So today we would like to thank, well, actually the first person I'm really worried about because I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce her name, but I met her in Helsinki and uh, she gave me uh, a book and a DVD and some chocolate, all of which were required. So thank you very much to uh, Aino Compare. What do you reckon? Compare and oh no, I've never had to say a name out loud. I know Compare. Brilliant. Thank anyway, you very much, great. Josie. David Sims, uh, Suomi, James Ward, Mike Chen, James Ward. Is that two James Wards? We don't know. Might be two. Thank you both, James Wards, or the single James Ward. We're thanking you twice. Chris Burns, Michael Devin, MG Case, Tyler Adams, Francesca Brettel, Jack Brooks, Stephen! Just Stephen, Nicholas Mangtalau, Chris McFarlane. He's very nice and has been to see both of us live. Ah, Chris McFarlane. Keith Mason, Holly Leeds, Paul, Becca Reed, Pesky, Matt Gill, Little Pope Peep, who poet, uh, Claire Campbell, Tom Hall, Ruby Anderson, Harriet Salisbury, Zoe Mitchell, Stephanie Weller, Stacey Allen, Nicholas McDonald, James Green and Nathan Lane. No, Nathan Lee. Wouldn't it be great if it was Nathan oh, Lane as Nathan well? I mean, it's Nathan Lee, though. Uh, Nathan Lane, why haven't you sponsored us yet? You must have loads of money from all your Broadway work. Ewan Taylor Gibson, Gareth Croxon, Claire Patterson, Isaac Sugden, Shona Penny, Alfred Clark and Luke Atkins. All of them, of course, well-known actors, writers and, and broadcasters. broadcasters. Bye-bye. Well, say goodbye, Josie. Goodbye. It's really not to. Thank you.